is a podcast that I started with the idea of having conversations on a variety of topics, trying to do a deep dive, um, maybe knowing something about the person, maybe not. Um, one of my guilty pleasures is um, Criminal Minds and the team at the BAU, and they always profile a serial killer or an unsub by the fact that they usually start in a geographical location that's comfortable to them. So I, I do do that. So I am using friends and family and friends of friends and Facebook friends, folks who are basically in my sphere at, at first to interview and have some conversations. Because I've always been curious about um, you know, where people come from, what their interests are, and I get really jazzed about talking to someone who's really enthusiastic about a subject that maybe I know a little bit about, maybe I know nothing about. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with my different guests. And um, please feel free to comment, send questions, um, or send suggestions for guests that you think might be interested uh, to be on Hi Felicia. Okay, so this is Hi Felicia podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan. My guest today is Cheryl Hamilton. Yay! Executive <laughs> Director of Mass Mouth. As well as creator and curator for Suitcase Stories, Suitcase Stories. a program of the International Institute of New England. Okay. So it's not an entity that's a nonprofit. Got it. So um, Cheryl and I met because Cheryl taught my storytelling class that I took through Mass Mouth, which was fabulous. Oh. And um, <clears throat> we're going to talk today about storytelling, probably a little bit about your background and how you came to storytelling. And then maybe well, I'll share why storytelling is so important to me, why I love it. Um, but thank you for coming on today and, oh, and thanks for having me and playing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we met in the class. So <laughs> yeah, is it unusual for you to teach, or do you like to teach? Um, it's a mix. Um, I, I do like teaching. Um, I do both of the. I teach both in our community classes, which are open to the public, as well as our corporate training. So that's great. So so tell me how you came to Mass Mouth and what your background is. Sure. So rather unusually, my background actually is 20 years working in the refugee and immigrant nonprofit field. Um, and I came to that into its own story. Um, I'm from a town of Lewiston and Auburn, Maine, in south, you know, central Maine. And in an unexpected series of events, shortly after 9-11, 5,000 Somali refugees migrated to our hometown. And I had just graduated college, I had a degree in forced migration, and I had written my thesis about my hometown with refugees. Wow. So it was, I was planning on going to Africa, but as my mom liked to say, Africa came to me. So that threw me in a field that was really exciting, generated a ton of stories, 
and then led me to working across the country, helping other cities learn from our mistakes and some of our successes, which then drew me to work internationally um, in Africa. And through that experience, I discovered, as many people already know, it's not the data you deliver to people to change their hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. It's the stories. Mm -hmm. And in 2007, I was sitting in a theater, and my best friend elbowed me in the side because he saw in the program an ad for a storytelling class. He's like, you should totally do this. You have so many stories about your hometown, about the country. And I said, yeah, I'm not a storyteller. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, I did theater when I was like 10. <laughs> but I said, I, you know, I'm an academic. I'm a policy person. I'm a practitioner. And he says, oh, come on. You should just sign up. So kind of like you who walked in a room of storytelling mm -hmm. classes – it, I believe it was a six-week class, and you were supposed to develop what was considered a 20-minute piece for a full-length play. Wow. And I was like, jeez. <laughs> um, and that was a lot of fun. Um, Challenging, and I, though. Yeah. I mean, the nice thing that he said as a director of the class was, don't think of it as a full-length play. Think of it as vignettes. So each story into itself is five to six minutes, mm -hmm. which is exactly what Mass Mouth sort of leads and introduces people to in the art and so by the end of the six weeks, the director pulled me aside and said, you should write that play. And I laughed in his face because I was like, no, <laughs> like, I'm not a storyteller. I'm not a playwright. I'm hardly a performer. And I said, also, I'm going to Togo in West Africa right now because I'm going to go live with the family of the first clients I've ever worked with. So I took off. Long story. I came back to the United States, walked into a cafe one day, and he looked at me and said, did you write the play? And I was like, no, I did not write this play. And he very thoughtfully looked at me and said, I will give up two nights of my life for the next six months to help you write it and direct it if you'll do that. Wow. And that changed my life. So I traveled for five years with the show while still working in the field. And eventually, when I finally retired it, when I moved to Boston, I discovered that I missed the community. Mm -hmm. I missed sharing stories. And I truly believe that stories are the fastest way to connect with your neighbors mm -hmm. in the most mm -hmm. authentic way. What were some of the ways that you saw that impact from both traveling and the, and the play that you did? Yeah, so I had woven together how the Somali migration impacted the community, but me really personally. For example, at the time, most people didn't know that I was involved in a trial where I had been sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. and that's partly why I stayed home. And mm -hmm. so there was many people that you know helped me through that, but surprisingly, one of the people who helped me most, who didn't even know it, was a Somali gentleman who was my coworker. And he was just always optimistic, and he had lived through terrible things, mm -hmm. much worse than me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to honor him and the other people who had given me strength and hope in my hometown. Mm -hmm. So I wove this story together about rape and racism and community building. And every time I performed it, people would come up to me afterwards, just like happens at our slams and our showcases, yeah, yeah. to say, I've had the same experience. Yeah. Or I never thought about the relationship between this stuff or... I'm going to go home, as many fathers said, and talk to my sons and my daughters about the importance of these subjects. Yeah. And, you know, I've been doing trainings for 10 years on how to welcome refugees. This was totally and different. That's amazing. That, that, first of all, did you think of yourself as brave when you were telling those, that story? Or, like, uh, how, yeah, how did question. you know that it was important for you to tell as a story? Because that's very personal information that not everyone would want to share. Well, one of the reasons was really in just contract to the articles and movies being made about my hometown. I mean, there were articles about how, you know, on the dark, dank streets of Lewiston, Maine, Somalis are coming. And I was like, 
um, that's my hometown you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And also they focus so often about the mayor not being welcoming, the national hate groups coming to our town, and all of those were certainly pivotal moments, but they were the people coming in and leaving, or they were the, as I used to say, like the extreme examples of some of the challenges we had. But really in this country, what we need to talk about are the relationships that neighbors have, yeah. colleagues have. Yeah. So as my brother said, after he saw the play, he felt like I had to say my piece to the world, not yeah. just the piece itself, yep, yep, yep. but my own observations. So was I brave? Um, maybe. <laughs> um, it didn't feel that way when I shared it. It felt, you know, partly cathartic, but partly just a meaningful experience I'll never forget. Yeah. And how, what was, did some people come up to you and say, I know you said that they, they related to it, but were they relating to it in a way where perhaps it was the first time that they saw someone talk about it in that way, and then that sort of helped open up something for them where they could share it? Yeah, I mean, certainly some people came up who had been um, assaulted themselves or a relative had and just wanted to honor that both of us had lived through that. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, my bigger goal was to say, particularly, let's be honest, as a U.S.-born white woman standing on a stage, owning my privilege, owning where I made cultural mistakes, and showing yeah. how migration, whether in the United States or globally, is not a one-way process. Yeah. It's transforming communities. So how do we do that? Well, we need to talk about it. We need to yeah. say that our experience as receiving communities are changing. We need to be adapting. But that ultimately, as the story has turned out in Lewiston, Auburn, it's the story of our history. It's communities of immigrants building community. Yeah. And also just it's about neighborhoods. And uh, I was just talking upstairs to the um, assistant director of MATV about storytelling. I was going to be um, – we're talking about trying to encourage more storytelling in Malden because Malden has such great diversity and wanting to honor that diversity through storytelling – because um, one of the things that I've found having just dipped my toe into storytelling is that it's it's kind of white suburban people getting up, which have lovely, meaningful, impactful stories. But when there's any type of diversity or differing voice or LBGT or or an immigrant story or someone who's not white, it adds so much more and it even impacts your how you, you're viewing storytelling. Yeah. So how do we encourage that? So you're exactly describing how suitcase stories came to be. Okay. So um, for the last five years, I've worked at the International Institute of New England, which is a 101-year-old organization serving new Americans in um, greater Boston and Lowell and southern New Hampshire. And shortly after the recent election, we identified a couple things um, that we saw that needed to change, and most importantly, the negative rhetoric aimed at new Americans. Mm -hmm. But also, again, this piece about how migration affects all of us, right? And I absolutely agree with you. My, uh, I don't know if it's too strong to say my frustration, but something I've also identified is the predominant white voices that are often featured in all storytelling communities, yeah. um, or at least how non-white people are telling stories appropriately in their communities, but how do we bridge that? Right. And so after the election, I went to my boss and I said, I have a crazy idea. 
in my back pocket for a long time. I've wanted to do this show called Suitcase Stories that honors stories of immigrant and refugee experiences, both from the perspective of newcomers as well as, again, U.S.-born folks. And we had two goals. One, again, raise education, but secondly, raise funding for the work we do. There's a lot of emphasis on needing more community education in this country around these issues, but no funding behind it. Mm-hmm. So we started... Um, I was really grateful to the greater New England storytelling community because half the people that perform in every show are newcomers to the craft. And the other half are people who have been doing this for at least a while. Mm -hmm. And through that, we were able to match people so that they could be coaching. And that had two benefits, right? One, the stories were better. And two, those folks didn't naturally have a relationship. So you're connecting people from different ethnicities, different countries. And we just planned to do four shows, and two and a half years later, we've done over 30. We've had 166 people from over 60 countries tell a story. That's awesome. Our youngest teller was eight years old. Our oldest teller was 92. (laughs) So I think we're starting there, and we've got a long way to go, but um, it's been the greatest privilege. And I don't often talk about this when I'm out giving speeches, but uh, like many people, after the election, it just was hard. It was emotionally hard. Yeah. And I remembered that the play, as my brother said, gave me peace in my own way. And I thought, if that's the small thing I can give to others, then this is a thing I want to do. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's so many levels to what you just said. Uh, As someone who's white and of privilege, you can feel that effect knowing that perhaps your life won't drastically change, but that your neighbor's life might or... You know, psychologically, I may have the means to uh, be able to deal with it because I can go and use my health care and get counseling or talk to friends or, you know, close my circle with like-minded people. But there's still ways that you can feel that impact, like I'm also a survivor of rape. And Mm -hmm. when the Kavanaugh hearings were... Like yeah. saturating us, yeah. Like that, that in and of itself was traumatizing. So, I can't even imagine that's the smallest sliver and slice. If my skin was a different color, or my immigration status was a you know different, or I was a newer American, or however that should be that worded, you know, words should be phrased. Living in fear, mm-hmm. like there's uh, all sorts of construction and stuff going on in my my neighborhood and my street. And there was a um, landscaping truck pulled over, and um, I looked out a couple of times because I thought I saw someone sitting in the cab. And I realized it was the wife and daughter, very small child of the const- of the person who was doing the landscaping. And all I could think of was. Why Why are mm-hmm. they sitting in the car? Are they worried about leaving that person at home for fear something may happen or there'd be a knock on the door? Or, mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and my mind just, I can't imagine that type of fear, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you on the, particularly the Kavanaugh trial. Um, I remember my brother te- texting me and saying, how you doing? And me immediately calling him and to my own surprise, having been more than 12 years now or, or whatnot, just bursting into tears. And yeah. it had been a long time since I had. And just remembering, like, we're just, there's everybody, you know, whatever, one in four women are assaulted, yeah. right? But to your point about fear, and um, it is so hard 
to work with our clientele and know that they have that additional challenge all yeah. the time. It's it's enough to have to learn a new language and secure a job and yeah. learn how to navigate a different culture. But to add that on top is just like, you know, this is not who we are and this is not what yeah. we believe in. Another thing that's come up with suitcase stories is certainly some people have said, you know, if you're doing an immigration show, no one comes unless they're like already on board. Are you just talking to the choir? And I remind them that uh, to simplify the choir as already totally enlightened about every immigration issue is wrong. And also, I've heard a lot of like victim language around immigrants. You know, we mm -hmm. have to help these, you know, poor people at mm -hmm. you know, the extreme level. And I was like, let's talk about the incredible talent and transferable skills and the range of immigrants. Yes. Um, right yeah. now in this country, you know, there's so much focus on the people coming across the border and the ter terrible things they're going through. But Boston has been built up and there's many immigrants who came to this country who are contributing to being a welcoming community. Absolutely. So in our shows, we try to put all of that on stage. Mm -hmm. We've also addressed this issue around, you know, are you only talking to the choir by actually bringing suitcase stories into schools now, into faith communities, and into businesses. We've had businesses contact us saying, we want to focus on diversity and inclusion. Great. This provides us a medium. And just like the National Geographic just included in their recent August edition that focused on migration, even though there is an extra burden to immigrants themselves in this country, we are all migrants. Whether you yeah. lose from Maine and yeah. try to adapt to Boston, yeah. And if we could talk about that at the very least base, yeah, that would help. Yeah, or if there's regional migrants. There's, yeah. um, <laughs> and we 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 for, we sort of think of again. That's the us and them language, yep, exactly. and we forget that that's that's our history. Right. Like um, I think one of the things I had one of those light bulb moments, not really realizing how little I did know until I, it was sort of in my face, but I was watching um, Finding Your Roots with Louis mm -hmm. Gates Jr., yeah. <laughs> which is a show I love. Yeah. Um, and I love the history of it. But every time there's an African-American um, person on there and they go through their history and they're successful or they're famous, it, it is almost directly correlates to how early in the process was their ancestor free. Mm -hmm. So... The earlier their ancestor was free, the less generations it took mm. for them to be successful. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's really and important. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> right, like right. that right there is right. like the lesson that you don't learn in the history books, like how many generations it took right. to get where they are. Or they were landowners very early on. Right. I'm embarrassed to think, and this is not a slight to Maine <laughs> alone, it's probably across the whole country, but I grew up in a public school system that I honestly do not remember a dialogue about Africa other than during geography no, classes, right? Never. And I don't recall any conversation about Muslims um, or interfaith discussions. And so I'm embarrassed to say at 21, this is when I started learning it, right? And when, you got to, when you got to college. Or even, after college. Even in college. <laughs> um, I mean, you self-select some classes, so I can't ignore yeah. that. But again, we are fascinated by what we're all fascinated by. And so yeah. I didn't have this immediate like connection to Africa. Um, but then when Somalis show up in your town, yeah. it, like we have a choice. We're either going to 
uh, turn away or alienate the newcomers or explore. And, and why did they come in in such a large group? Why was 5,000 yeah, so there at once? It's one of the untold stories of 9-11, actually, so, and housing combined. So Portland has been attractive more and more to people, particularly leaving like big cities like Boston. It's more affordable. Mm-hmm. It's smaller. It's a great community for all diversity. Um, but in 2001, the housing stock, because of this migration of people, regardless of nationality, had dropped to like less than 1%. So immigrants who had moved in and maybe even were homeless in the shelters where I worked at the time uh, couldn't find affordable housing. So we were working with other cities that had a lot of affordable housing, including Lewiston on Auburn. And Lewiston Auburn, interestingly, had a lot of affordable housing because relatives of mine who had been Catholic with large families, some of them had out-migrated, and you could get a four- or five-bedroom apartment for, you know, four or five hundred, six hundred dollars. Wow. Right. So at the same time across this country after 9-11, as businesses went overseas, a lot of the manufacturing plants where immigrants worked also lot people lost jobs. Yeah. So people were looking as often as the poll safe communities, affordable housing, job opportunities. And because the Somali culture is so community-focused, some families started moving and they said, this is a good place to raise our children. And word got out. (laughs) And next thing you know, you had all these folks moving in. And fortunately, starting businesses, starting nonprofits, uh, there is a very famous book right now called One Goal that talks about the influence of the uh, the Somali students on the soccer team and helping, you know, win the first championships in 40 years. Mm-hmm. So so that was a big draw. And this is not unusual in the country right now. I, I teach migration in colleges, and I we talk about how urban cities, as all of us know, are just becoming unaffordable, mm-hmm. uh, not affordable. And so you're seeing cities like Boise and Fargo and Fort Collins, Colorado, mm-hmm. being a destination for a variety of people. Yeah. Fort Collins is cool. We have yeah. relatives that live there. We've been there multiple times. It has like a South Burlington kind of feel. That's a good and, point, yeah. And um, But there's, as opposed to the rest of Colorado, <laughs> even right. Denver, there's like a little more diversity. Mm-hmm. There's a little more affordability. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I've, I got the privilege of traveling to every resettlement city when I was working nationally. And my favorites um, were surprised to me. Boise, Idaho tremendously, I mean, they have issues like all the cities, but really active in trying to explore what does integration mean and how do yep. we measure it? Yep. I mean, the mayor started a refugee integration task force. And how, how did they, how, why was that successful for them? Well, I think it holds ourselves accountable. One of the fascinating things about research in this country around integration is that we're one of the few Western countries that actually has a federal integration policy and practices and um, for welcoming immigrants, even though we celebrate our immigrant history. It's kind of a yeah. contradiction. And so it's really putting the responsibility and um, thoughtfulness of cities to look at this yeah. and look at it comprehensively. Because, yeah. for example, often the measurement of integration is economics, right? Mm-hmm. Are people working? Mm-hmm. And this is the biggest fear of people who are um, – uh, against immigration. You know, they're going to be a burden. Yep. They're not going to contribute. They're and taking so, away from real Americans. Yeah, exactly. And so, but integration, as we all know, is much more. It's health access. It's neighborhoods that are affordable. Mm-hmm. It's transportation. It's education. Um, it's business development. Mm-hmm. And interestingly for me, which comes back to suitcase stories and the storytelling community at large, it's social integration. 
And in my argument is that that's always like at the bottom of the barrel focus. Mm -hmm. Do you have friends? Are you going to nonprofits? Are Mm -hmm. you civically participating? Um, And yet, if we could start there, that would actually impact Mm -hmm. the rest. Are employers interested and willing to hire newcomers? Mm -hmm. Are doctors culturally competent? Are teachers excited about the diversity Mm -hmm. or resistant to it? Mm Those uh, social markers that you were talking about are also measures of health in seniors. Oh, I, yeah. I work in the yeah. elder sort of health care field, and those are two markers of, of predictors of health or longevity or good health is that are you socially connected to your community, whether that's a religious organization yeah. or community group, and um, do you get out? Like, mm-hmm. do, you, mm-hmm. do you go see your doctor? Do you have friends? Do you have social activities? Do are you, you isolated or yes. you have yeah. – yeah. And so, like, if we measure that now for an elder community, why wouldn't we apply that to our greater community? You know? Yeah, and the other thing is if we could stop worrying about the labeling of people – and focus on the issues, right? Housing is a challenge for everybody. Absolutely. Um, and yet when we talk about do immigrants have housing, do U.S. born, and there's also all this attention now on multinational individuals, people who actually spend half their time in different countries mm-hmm. or they have multiple um, parents or multiple parents. Their parents live in different places. Yeah. Like their identity is not shaped. There's a – it's called third culture kids for young people. They just don't know where they belong. Yeah. So – so say more about that because that's really interesting. Is, is that something that's uh, – I think of that as applies to like an Asian community, but but I may be wrong in that there's a lot of folks that I've known at least who have been like from China who send a kid over here with a grandparent mm-hmm. or whatever, but the parents are still in that you know main country and mm-hmm. sometimes the child is more – is grown up only in America, doesn't have a sense of what that culture is that they came from, but the parents only speak the native language. Yeah, in the in the study of immigration that's called, um, we, we casually call it teens in between, right, or children in between, or frankly adults, <laughs> that they're trying to navigate that. But the third culture kid movement essentially is, uh, to use this example, I have a friend who's a professor at Clark University. Her daughter was born in Sudan, but they ultimately migrated to London, and then she eventually came to the United States. Now, the professor actually is an immigrant from Hungary, right? So their wow. family has all these multiple uh, identities. So when she got to college, she was like, where do I belong? It's, you know, the Sudanese students don't naturally see me as them um, because she's biracial. The I don't even know if there is a Hungarian community. Um, the predominantly white students that she grew up in Western Mass didn't, you know, quite know what to do with her. So she's found connections through these other students that have these multiple identities. And I actually think these students and these future leaders are the ones that are going to teach us Mm -hmm. about community building and supporting different identities. Mm -hmm. So how do we make sure that those voices are part of the conversation and also part of the ones telling us what they need rather than us, like, again, the lovely white people who want to be involved and participate, mm-hmm. thinking that we know what they want. Yeah, I mean, the, the quickest thing we can do is um, be quiet. Right? <laughs> <laughs> sit and, sit in a room yeah. and look and be like, um, we've never, I mean, I'm not the first, I've, many people have said this, um, as a white person in the United States, now sure, women have had a unique experience, but no one's told us that our voice doesn't matter. 
So in a classroom, I'm going to be speaking up first because I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, and even if I'm wrong, that's considered in itself a gift to learn, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I feel like over my own experience, to look around the room and notice who isn't talking and helping them find space, but also like the storytelling community, the best advice I got from a woman in Boise who ran a jewelry co-op sort of casual community I said to her, you know, how did you get into this? She had a lot of diversity in her co-op. And she said, I love making jewelry. Like, start with something you love and invite people into it. So I love storytelling. And that's why I try Mm -hmm. to bring as many people into it. How have you seen, um, now that you've just said storytelling. (laughs) Sure. How have you seen your storytelling journey sort of evolve? Like, where are you now in that process (laughs) as opposed to where you started? Uh, Am I shocked that I spend all my time in storytelling? Absolutely. I mean, I was doing policy and service delivery, and this has been a crazy journey. But um, a couple of the big things for me is, you know, I used to be on stage for 90 minutes. um, And now I find myself not needing to be on stage as much or frankly at all I can't I find such joy and excitement in finding people who are willing to tell their stories Mm -hmm. and making sure they have a stage to do so Mm -hmm. Um, and I also have grown to really love coaching I've learned from other great coaches and storytelling you know a lot of people, I think, tell good stories but don't even know why. Like one yeah. story really works and they're like, I was great. And then the next story fails and you don't know why. Yeah. So it's been fun to learn the craft. Um, and it's been a privilege to serve with MassMouth um, colleagues and uh, the community to make sure that MassMouth survives. Um, it is a scrappy little nonprofit, as we like to say, with mm-hmm. a national television show produced yes. by World Channel and WGPH. <laughs> That's been surreal. And how'd that come into being? Yeah, so um, MassMelt is a 10-year-old organization. It's a nonprofit um, founded by Andrea Lovett and Nora Dooley that initially was focusing on mostly like slams and other events. Um, It did get into student programming, but about five years ago, um, the founders, or founder Nora, one of them, uh, decided to step away and return to her storytelling and her education and really youth-focused. And there were several of us that our hearts broke because... When we moved to Boston, that's how we made friends. And we often say at MassMouth, it's almost community first and storytelling second mm-hmm. um, because that honors the listeners. It honors the people that are like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be a, quote, storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like, no, don't don't close. So four of us volunteered to step up. And for the last four years and five years, we've been um, really growing uh, MassMouth. And a very pivotal moment was for seven, I think almost seven years now, we had been doing live storytelling at WGBH in partnership with their events programming. Mm -hmm. We would bring six people. They would tell eight to 10-minute stories on different themes. Um, And about two, I guess, two and a half years ago now, I got a phone call from an employee there and said, we have a crazy question. Would you like to have a national, uh, would you like your storytelling programs filmed for national TV? And I just... Uh, you know, I put the mute on and laughed out loud, <laughs> and then I took it off, and I said, um, well, of course, that sounds very interesting, <laughs> and it has been very interesting, and again, every season needs about 120 new voices, Wow! and what we've said to WGBH and World Channel from the beginning, and we're so grateful for them for putting storytelling at the front mm-hmm. of media, but is that MassMelt is about n- newcomers. Yep. and honoring all styles of storytelling. So we want 
even on this program, several people to have never told a story before. And um, that's been important. And it's, yeah, we're having a lot of fun. So what do you think um, virgin storytellers <laughs> bring to the, Yeah, a lot. Well, one thing is that they don't overthink it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they overthink being nervous maybe. Yeah. But storytelling, we do it every day. We do right. it at our dinner yep. tables at the bar, right? Yeah. Instinctually, you've told stories your whole life. So we remind people that up front, like be authentic. Right. We're going to help you with the narrative because yep. sometimes when you're telling your own story, you don't know what people need to hear. Or you think people need to hear too much. <laughs> yep. Um, when I wrote my play, the best thing my director did, because he didn't want to discourage me, was he would come in every Tuesday night and say, okay, just tell me stories from Lewiston. And I would just rattle on. And at the end, he would be like, no, it's not that that story isn't interesting, but this other one's better. And so when we're talking to a new storyteller, it's the same thing. Like, what do you want to share? Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's the best thing. And also just to be open to editing. None of us like necessarily to have our stories yeah, edited, yeah. but most of the storytellers we work with that are new said, oh my God, I've learned so much and I feel more confident. Yeah. I think one of the things I found really interesting in the storytelling class was you guys were very good. You very, very good about Aww. being encouraging and coaching and mentoring and really, um, you know, sitting beside us while we're doing that and not, not necessarily being like, I am telling you how to tell a story. <laughs> no, but yeah. like showing us examples in a range and giving us that comfort of how we would tell a story versus how to tell the story. Oh, that's well said. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I think um, the, the part that I loved, though, that I think was, was amazing was seeing the range of storytelling mm -hmm. and also seeing people who had great were really great in the class but then did something different when they were mm -hmm. on stage or vice versa mm -hmm. or even myself kind of unexpected unexpectedly really sucking in class <laughs> and struggling you did not suck no 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 really <laughs> struggling with how to tell the story and then just repetition and then getting on stage and being like surprisingly comfortable yeah. and felt like I got to say it the way that I meant to say it. Well, I'm glad that was the outcome for you. Um, yeah, I mean, this is not Shakespeare, right? You're not trying to recreate a character that's been done a thousand times yeah. and maybe done really well, yeah, right? Yeah. In fact, some of the challenges with people who've been telling stories for a while is you get performative. Um, yeah. And particularly if you've been performing like for large audiences that need that extra energy because you're trying to fill the room. Mm -hmm. um, so that's number one. Number two is I've, in my own background, had some producers just not make it a positive experience. Mm -hmm. um, they've either tried to edit to a very specific level every sentence I'm saying or they have been skeptical of why I included detail. So I promised myself that every teller should just feel good about sharing their voice. It's actually one of the reasons that when I help set the microphone level at the WGBH show, right before I turn around, if you don't see it, I just say to the teller, have fun. Like, have fun. Yeah. Even if it's a hard story. Um, so that's important to me. Um, and I think, like you said, there's something wonderfully magical between the class and the recital yeah. or between picking a teller for the TV show and they're standing on stage because um, you think that that energy might be making you enorm nervous. An audience will make you more nervous, mm -hmm. but they want to hear you. Yep. They didn't bravely get up, yep. <laughs> you know, and it's easier when people respond to something to feel good. 
So here's a little story about that. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) So I was totally prepared for what I was going to do. I I knew why I was there. It was a bucket list thing for me. And I was sitting in Club Passim on our recital night in the booth, knowing who, I think I was second. Mm -hmm. So knowing who I had to follow. Mm -hmm. And as she was telling her fabulous story, my mind was going, you can just go hide in the bathroom now. You don't have to do this. You do not have to do this. You just get up right now, walk out. They will never find you. You don't have to do this. It's time to go. Like, like I could feel myself like edging forward going, I'm just going to run now. They'll never find this. you. It's fine. They will fill the slot. And, I, and Teresa called my name and I was like, Oh, and I did that like really like slow motion where you see yourself walking forward. And all I could think of was, I don't have any makeup and I didn't do my fingernails. (laughs) And when I got up on stage, I think she said, nice hat. And I was like, oh, thank you. And she asked me something and I said something that sounded meaningful. And she was like, oh, that's lovely. Oh, she asked me what was like something good that happened today. And I said, "I, I talked to a friend about telling this this story tonight and how nervous I was and she said just picture the room full of love oh good job Teresa (laughs) (laughs) and she was like that's lovely and I was like oh thank god I said something meaningful (laughs) and then I turned and I don't remember I kind of don't remember seeing anyone I saw people but I don't I didn't see one particular person and then I just felt like my body and my mind and whatever settle. Mm-hmm. And then I just did what I did. I don't think it was perfect, but I felt like I I hit what I wanted. I hit the marks I wanted to hit. I hit the, the arc and the notes. And Yeah, I mean, there's no such thing as a perfect story. And we remind yeah. people, they're like, what if I forget? I'm like, well, first of all, you lived it. So you're not going to totally yes. get it wrong. Yes. And two, it's nobody knows what you were going to right. say. Right, right. I actually, um, oh, and by the way, who you just referenced is Teresa Koken. Who I is love a, her. Oh. Fangirl over her. <laughs> so many of us are. I follow uh, her on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> she has Instagram too. Do you know that? <laughs> I don't think I follow her there yet. Yeah. She, um, she's a long-term mass mouth uh, teller, volunteer, now coach, but um, she's in also... The, in the Green Street Writers Project, right? Um, Grub Street. Grub Street. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. And then also she's the co-host with Wes Hazard of Stories from yes. the Stage. Um, so, you know, and she would say the same thing. Like, you'd be surprised the journey that this is. Yeah. I also want to acknowledge that your story right there highlights a lot of the things we talk about as a good story, right? So a really good story needs to have some sort of conflict that's, like, leading it. And so you just <laughs> threw us in it, right? Like, I don't know if I can do this. And conflict can be... External, like there's a rock coming down a mountain yeah, at you, yeah, yeah. or internal a belief, right? And then the second thing is character development. So I just learned a lot about you <laughs> in that moment, which I definitely... Like that I look calm on the outside, but yeah. then I'm crazy on the inside. And that, you know, you're someone that might flee or not flee, or I, I just love all of it. That you care about your nail color. I mean, <laughs> and that's the stuff we talk about. Like, yeah, you need, you need things we relate to. And yeah. then the last thing is theme, and theme is what you just said, like bravery and love, and it doesn't have to be perfect. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. Good story you told. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And no, and it was, it, I think it was, it was, it's such a process, and we forget that we're so hard on ourselves. Oh, yeah. And we're so worried about what's going to happen when we get on stage or that we're going to freeze. And I think there were a couple of people the night, 
that I was up there that that happened too. But we're, everyone was so pulling for them mm-hmm. in watching them make it through mm-hmm. and go back and not flee and not <laughs> break down and like this isn't football. You're not cheering for another side. You, and again, like we're there. We're not going anywhere. What feels like three seconds to us feels like five hours to the person Absolutely. on stage. Absolutely. So yeah, I hear you. So. What have you learned from the mistakes that you've made with your storytelling? So one thing I've said to my partner is um, if I have not prepared a story for a slam, but I'm like super excited about someone else's story and it reminds me of a story, to hold my hand and not let me go up. Um, Because every time I've gone up without my prepared story, I die and want to come, like I want to run. Mm -hmm. And I figure that out about halfway through telling and then I'm like, I got to finish this. And I'm so angry later that I did it. Not that I probably made I probably made sense, but I forget the things that are important to really focus on. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. So you have enthusiasm and excitement, but you're you're better if you've had repetition. Yeah, and some people actually are better just getting up. Yeah. But for me, obviously, I talk fast. Um, I get really excited about a lot of things that I stuff. I try to stuff too many themes, for example. Or I forget to talk about the other character in the story. <laughs> yeah, so uh, you need to know yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the other mistake I've made is sometimes willing to go the distance and being vulnerable. Like, we're all filled with mistakes and talents and tribulations, and I just have to remind myself that that's the difference between a speech and a story, mm-hmm. and that's the difference between the person sitting in the back of the room being like, oh, yeah. So... Can you tell me a story about that? Uh, Like give me an example? Yeah. So one very specific example is the first, I think it was the first story I ever told at Club Passim five years ago was about dating this person, them uh, at a bar, sitting in a bar, and I've been dating the person for quite a bit, and them leaning over and saying, um, uh, Cheryl, I need to tell you something. And I joke about how at 30, that's never good, right? Um, And I joke about who I've dated that were not good and the surprise endings, including one who became a priest. And uh, then the person who at the time was nameless Justin comes out and asks if she can wear a dress on our next date because she's now telling me that she's transgendered. And that was a shock. Mm. Now, in that moment... I could have gone on and on about like, oh, I'm so understanding. I used to work on LGBTQ issues, which Mm -hmm. is true. I worked on marriage equality. Mm -hmm. I'm so admiring her. And that comes out in the story. But let's be honest, that was not my first response. Right. I was like, what? Like, first of all, like, I've been investing in this relationship. I do like men. This is not going to go anywhere. But second of all, I was pretty shallow because – Justin, now April, was very attractive, very fit, and all into style. So I'm like, oh, my God, she's going to look better in a dress than I am. You know, like, this is ridiculous. Um, And so then I talk about why, and that I'm very much a tomboy. I don't relate to my, quote, feminine side very easily. And I end the story by saying, you know, that's none of that's important. It's about our relationship and our friendship. And then I last line joke to say, you know, she's going to teach me about fashion. But that, but that's all about vulnerability mm-hmm. and and sort of knowing yourself yep. and and it being a story where you're telling it from 
being in it rather than observing yourself in it or yeah. or or what you would espouse or want your ideals to be because when any of us are challenged in a moment with something like that we have a real response we don't have an intellectual response to yeah. it right and sometimes it's not the response that even we expect right right i actually and the other thing about that story that's been really hard is that I admittedly mess up the pronouns right ta- right now, uh, uh, re- sometimes. Right. Not right now, but sometimes because Justin was Justin to me right. for a long time. So I messed it up at a local show here in Boston, and I was really admired this young man who walked up to me and said, you got those wrong, and in fact, like, why would you do that if you're trying to honor this person? And I said to him, First of all, thank you for coming up and telling me that. Right. And second of all, I'm thinking in my head, God, which ones, right? right. And I'm afraid my friend is going to find out. So for a fast-speaking person, if and when I tell that story again, I try to slow down so much in those moments that she is who I should be identifying. Right. But that's also real, too. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. how, you know... It, that that person probably has the she mm-hmm. has a before and after. Yep. So there was a, a the she was a he mm-hmm. at one point or had that gender and identified mm-hmm. that way. So it's okay that you then can explain that Justin was a he mm-hmm. as you knew him in that moment. Doesn't mean that she's not a she now. Right. Or was a well, she I think, then? I think she's always been a she, but had to present as a he to the public. Okay. And but that was also how you identified. Oh, yeah. I that mean, was the, the gender they were yeah. telling you they were. And I had to admit that, and I didn't, I don't think I did as much as I could have. Now, I, I had to say I was angry too, right? But like, that sounds inconsiderate, but like, I felt tricked. Um, now, we've talked about that at length. I know yeah. why she had to do that. I know that I care about her more that I don't really care at this point. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. like, that was also, like, come on. Like, <laughs> misrepresentation in relationships, right, right, right. however you misrepresent yourself, right. is problematic. Yeah, and, I mean, I, I, I can identify that in a way where I had a boyfriend in high school who was gay. Mm-hmm. He hadn't been – he wasn't out at that mm-hmm. point. But there were issues within the relationship. There were probably clues. Yeah. But when he finally came out, we had a history and we had a relationship and we had a friendship where if he had come out to me, maybe when we were dating, I would have had a different reaction. And I maybe would have, I would have been hurt. I would have been sad. I would have been, what's wrong with me? I I would have gone through that range. But because we were friends and I probably knew or processed or whatever, when he came out to me, I was like, Okay. <laughs> right. Cause We're good. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Well, I think what you just said is important too. There's a tendency with people who come to classes or come to a slam or even a showcase, they feel like they need to tell the most dramatic story from their lives. Yeah. And even when they choose the most dramatic, they feel like they have to deliver it dram- dramatically. Yeah. As if every part is hard, whether you've lost a loved one or survived cancer or whatnot. It's like, giving yourself permission to make jokes or be self-deprecating at points or talk about how the other person, even if it's a loved one, is challenging. And I think that takes work. Um, I often tell people if you're first-time storytelling, really think if that's the first story you want to tell, not because I don't want to hear it and not because it's not important, but sometimes when you're just trying to learn the nuts and bolts of storytelling, that can be a big jump into the deep end. Yeah. So 
You told a story, I think, at our recital about your mom, which was... Oh, God, that was your class. <laughs> beautiful and touching. And I think it, there was part... Was there part of it that was funny? I think... Uh, yes, because it's actually funny. I th- well, I'd say most of it's funny for 80% of it. Yeah. Yeah. And then you come in with the... The punch. <laughs> at the yeah. end. But it's beautiful. Thank like you. How... That was the first time telling it. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so... Um, I, the first might have been the second. It was the okay. same week. I don't remember which one was first. Okay. So how do, how do you decide what you are mm-hmm. going to talk about? So I think like many storytellers, there are stories that just naturally come to you. I mean, there is a surreal thing sometimes. Like when I wrote my play and I look back, I'm like, I never wrote anything down. I literally went to the basement, which was dirt, and talked to a wall. And I feel like, ooh, that's kind of cool. It came out of my mouth. <laughs> but I don't know where it wow. came from. Um And that's the same, I think, with that piece particularly. Um, Also, and we talk about a lot of this in storytelling, when is it therapy on stage and when is it therapeutic? Um, If you're not ready to tell a story, Mm -hmm. you need to check yourself. And I needed to tell that story. Partly like the play, it gave me sort of peace to Mm -hmm. say this. It was a way to tribute to my mother. Um, And let's be honest, like, it's a crazy story. I mean, uh, and... My fiance and I debate this right now. Um, my mother passed away during an accident on the way to my cousin's wedding. Uh, and I'm about to get married. Now, my partner rightfully says it doesn't, she could have died the day before in a car crash. She could have had a stroke three days later. And I'm like, yeah. oh, come on. The storyteller in me can't ignore that that's a crazy link. Yeah. And so, it, you know, and so for me, finding a place to put those feelings and let them go, but also, yeah. Say something that I know people in the audience, I hope, related to it. And and that's a really important, whether it's written storytelling, whether it's poetry, whether it's memoir, what, uh-huh. whatever it is. I've I've I write I write not nonfiction, yeah. but it's fantastical, so it has some strange elements in I'll it. Have to read it. <laughs> um, I work with. Um, a local writers group here called the Malden Writers Collaborative, and we workshop each other's work. Perfect. We go from September to May. It's it's very um, it's community organization. Some That's people awesome. write science fiction. Some I'm one of several people that write nonfiction that write mm-hmm. about ourselves. So when we're discussing the character, mm-hmm. the character is me. So it sometimes is a little weird, but everything I've ever learned is. If what people are reading or experiencing of yours is emotional vomit, Mm -hmm. there's no way for them to process Mm -hmm. and appreciate it. Mm -hmm. So you may need to sit with it. It may Mm -hmm. need to come out more organically. Mm -hmm. It may need to go through certain revisions. Mm -hmm. You may need to do a little therapy, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And then when you present it to the world, people can see... Perhaps arc, perhaps value to it. They see the humor. They mm-hmm. see the sadness. Because it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag. Right. At least for me, it's always a mixed bag. Yeah. When I did the recently did the Risk show that my story ended up on the podcast, ugh, I hope I apologize to Risk. I don't feel like it was very strong. It had the elements that were strong. But I sort of acknowledged lately that I've really put my sexual assault on the back burner and I'm happy about that. I don't think about it the same way, except when Kavanaugh and other things come up. Um, and I thought, well, this is appropriate. The theme fits it. You know, I'll big, dig it mm-hmm. back up. And it had a lovely 
message in it, which is essentially I was able to love people again, you know, 15 years later. But I listened to it and I was like, oh, I should have, I didn't need half that content. I was doing some therapy, which is not my style. And so I'm pleased <laughs> that I I'm almost, I guess it was about a year later when I did my mom's piece, I owned that I should really think about it more and know that I could go up there and tell it, not diverting or ad-libbing um, and just tell it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, one of the pieces that I had been working on was a story from childhood um, that alludes to um, abuse. Mm -hmm. But I felt it was really important for the story to allude to it, not to necessarily go into it, because at the time I was a very young child, so I don't, I don't remember it that I don't remember it graphically. Yeah. Um, so I talk about sights and sounds, and the first time I wrote it and it was workshopped, I realized that people weren't quite getting it, and mm -hmm. it was there was more that needed to be said, but sort of being able to sit with it. So I tell it from the story of a bird. Oh. watching what was happening yeah. as well as myself. That's, cl that's clever and good. And um, it ended up working. And yeah. there was enough detail in there so that people understand perhaps what the, what the struggle was or what the conflict was or what the details were, but in a way that it's not overwhelmingly graphic because that would be me as an adult describing it rather than the child who experienced it. That was the greatest advice I got from my director when we got to the hardest scene he said to me, we don't need much. It doesn't actually matter how it like exactly went down. Yes, it's yeah. the outcome. The story is about the outcome. And yeah. so all I did is say, you know, I tripped and fell and he was able to grab me. And that's all you need to know because you already know the outcome. Right. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I mean, every st I, just, I just love listening to stories. The other thing I um, do with coaches, particularly with suitcase stories, is that if you have not been a refugee, for example – that story is so foreign to you, and that experience is almost incomprehensible. And so although as a listener you learn things and it's fascinating to you, I don't want it to be purely a voyeuristic experience, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, because I've traveled to refugee camps. There are families there. There are fears. There are funny days. There are dancing. Um, there yeah. are businesses. People yeah. don't even know that there's economic activity within the camps. Yeah. And so what I tell our tellers is I was like, don't, don't tell the chronology of your life. Right. Tell us moments that we would never imagine yeah. that we start to get it. Right. And one of the examples quickly that I will never forget is we worked with a Syrian young woman who bravely told her story in English after 18 months in this country, having not known English when she got here. And I said, you know what? We hear all the time that people flee their country. This is the verb we use all the time. Mm -hmm. How do you actually flee, right? Uh, you're in a big city. Like, are you taking a car, a bus? Are you running? What are you running from, you know? And she said, well, when our house was bombed, my dad said, that's it, we're out. And he said, just run. And he said, if anybody in the family falls, don't look back. Because what he was basically saying is they were probably shot. And he didn't want people to see it. Oh, gosh. And then he said, when you get to a corner... Other people who had fled before would handwrite on the walls whether to go left or right based on whether they thought there were snipers. Like, that is storytelling to me. Wow. Yeah. That's that. And who, who, who is that? Yeah. Uh, she's, uh, she's amazing. Her name is Zainab Abdo. She is a client of the International Institute of New England. She resettled in this country late 2016 now. So maybe it's been 16. She didn't speak English. She came with her entire family. 
And she was the oldest sibling, so she immediately got a job at Walmart. She eventually worked at Dunkin' Donuts. She's now at the community college. She's so driven. And she was featured in the New York Times and CNN because after the election and after the travel ban, she said to me, I'm not a terrorist, and Syrians are not terrorists, Mm -hmm. and we're fleeing the terrorists, so I want to speak up. And then I said, well, I have a speak up opportunity for you. Do you want to do suitcase stories? And I told her what it was. And she said, sure. And she didn't have much English at that time, so it motivated her. And she stood in front of 300 people at the city winery on World Refugee Day and told her story. But to your point about nerves and your experience, Mm. you two should have coffee because she was backstage and she was like, oh, forget it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. And I was like, well, you're going to do it because we're here. But I said, you know, if you don't want to. And she said, I don't know. Maybe they're not going to care. And I was like, okay, they're going to care. But then what happened was the woman before her from the Dominican Republic, who is a vice president now of technology at State Street, who came to this country like her um, from the Dominican but struggled to get work despite speaking English um, in her field of technology, is telling her story and her struggle with English and how she used to practice phone numbers by reading the yellow pages every night and writing down the names and numbers. And Zainab hears her, and she says, she didn't speak much English when she came, and this is who she is? And I said, yeah. And she's like, okay, I can do this. And that's, that's everybody, awesome. everyone gets nervous. Yeah. and the, But that's also, like, I'm trained life coach. I have oh, my great. own coaching business. I do both health and wellness and life, but pretty much everything is life coaching. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's this idea that we don't have to be perfection. Yeah. We, maybe we are seeing someone who's just one rung on the ladder up from us, and that makes us think, oh, we can do that thing, whatever that thing is. And even as a coach, I work with a coach because I have days so when I. I'm like, I am a fraud. Mm-hmm. I am an imposter. Mm-hmm. I suck at everything. Mm-hmm. I'm half-assing this. Everyone's going to find out that I suck mm-hmm. regardless of what I do. And then I think, no, I just have to be one rung up the ladder. Yeah, I think that's why if you ask Teresa and our other coaches and teachers at MassMouth, They love these recitals. The recital is when you graduate from a class and you stand on stage and tell your story because it's just authentic and you can see, like you said, people get better. Yeah. Um, So I'm I'm totally with you on that. (laughs) So... What kind of stories now are you working on to uh, to tell? So actually, that's what I mean by I'm not right now. Okay. Um, because uh, I'm always looking for stories. And I think it's really fun to go through the newspaper and the magazines Absolutely. to just be like, ah, oh, who's out there with interesting, right? And then uh, a, another storyteller recently joked that you don't get to say no to Cheryl, which I thought was hilarious. Maybe it's because I used to do debate. Um, I get to call them and convince them that they really should tell their story. And not just locally, but on national television. So that's always a fun game. Um, I've called poker players. I've called Olympic skiers yeah. and just say, or uh, uh, not skiers, us. Uh, uh, jumpers, what are they called? Whatever that's called. I just blanked for a second. I was like, it's not the high jump. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the one where you ski down and then, oh my God, what is that called? Oh, so sorry, Nick. <laughs> um, ski jumping. Yes. That's all it is. Okay. Ski jumping. Sorry. Like, it must be more so complicated bad. than that. Um, yeah, it's, 
it's talk about life coaching. I have a coach too. And when I decided to transition from service provider to storytelling, I took a little exercise. And at first, I'll be honest, I was like, I'm not cutting pictures out of magazine and slapping them on a collage. That's not me. But I was there. You don't want to do a life map or <laughs> oh yeah, I, I literally <laughs> a vision was, board. I was so scared. Yes, that's what it was. Board? It was a vision board, right? Yeah. And I don't even like that word makes me cringe. But I was there. It was what people were doing, so mm. I did. And I found it recently, and I saw that in the middle of the board, I put a young boy who was disabled, and he was proudly smiling on a stage, and it said, I want to be up there. Mm. And for me, it's like letting people like that have a voice. Yeah. Also in the far corner said wedding, and I'm excited that I'm having one wow. in two months. Congratulations. That's Thank wonderful. You. I'm pretty happy. I've been engaged. It will be two years. <laughs> I am... Um, yeah. So the story that I told on stage was about being with my yeah. previous partner for like 20 years. I've been with my current partner for uh, 10 years. Nice. I'm not a I'm not a marrying girl, but when he but it was lovely when he asked and mm-hmm. we've been engaged now and if we get married, yeah, if yeah. we don't, mm, yeah, it's okay. Um and for me, um well, if you heard my story, it was important and yeah. partly and partly because over time, <laughs> I had dated a lot of people because, um, well, I dated a lot of people. And I needed some demarcation between dating and mm-hmm. marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, also, as I stay in the story, my family is all about sharing your life with somebody. And I don't have children. I don't plan to have children. Mm-hmm. But I wanted a reason to bring all the loved ones together. And yeah, so yeah, yeah. my partner um, kindly agreed. And he's wonderful. And we're planning a fun wedding. That's great. Which we'll what, have storytelling. What, yeah, when he, oh, you are? You yeah, we're having a storytelling show in the middle of the wedding. Nice. Where is this going to be? Uh, so it usually makes people laugh. We're having it at the Boston Public Market. Our really? first date was there, and I love a good story. Um, I contacted them and said, have you ever hosted a wedding? And they said no, so we're the first one. And uh, it's silly and fun, and we get to celebrate all these small businesses. My friend is a writer, and she's writing little briefs about all the vendors' stories in life. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, so, you know, hopefully it's a good time, and I'm just I'm, – I'm really happy in my life this last months and years. And after yeah. after working in Refugee and Immigrant Affairs, it is a roller coaster of emotions, mm-hmm. and I feel grateful right now that there's a lot of joy – in my life, and that's hard to say after losing my mother less than a year yeah. ago, but she loved storytelling, so this is what I can do to honor her. What kind of ritual will you have that will make sure that she's included in it? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little anxious to be like, how are we going to do that with all of us crying? Um, I didn't need a bridal shower, but my aunt and my sister-in-law are like, oh, no, you're having one. And I know that behind that is a motivation for everybody to sort of step in her shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that my father and my brothers will honor her in their remarks. And even though I'm a storyteller, I can't imagine me talking about her without yeah. totally being you know, devastated by it. Yeah. But um, I will be wearing her ring. I'm wearing her necklace. And, oh, that's lovely. And as I said in the memorial, um, actually, which ended with a story, was that we weren't getting together for Christmas because the whole family was going to be at the uh, wedding on New Year's Eve. But it didn't feel right, so I called her and I said, can we have lunch in Portsmouth? And uh, Chris and I, my fiancé and I, went up, and we had French toast, and we talked about you know life and stories. And when I left, she texted me like she always does. And she said, first of all, don't forget to see Mary Poppins because she loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she said, and we also really like Chris. And so for me, 
that was a way for me to say, you know, yeah, uh, she would be there and support this union. That's lovely. Thank you. That's really lovely. Thanks. That's why I have a podcast, so I can bring people <laughs> to tell the tell the kind of stories about their life and what they're passionate about. And yeah, we've gone all over the map. That's exa- <laughs> literally. That's exactly what my. You're a good so interviewer. I, I try not to have too many questions. I try to maybe have a little bit of a yeah. roadmap, but I love that idea of it just weaving organically because that's what a conversation is. It's not an interview. It's a conversation, yeah. and I think that's the your your folks who do the the pre the pre-interview with the storytellers mm-hmm. that's what I love mm-hmm. because they ask a, a few kind of leading questions but mm-hmm. they're very they're there they're present they're they're listening and yeah and I I appreciate those too in part because we all learn about storytellers and particular stories on stage but we don't always take the time to say but why do you do storytelling yeah. like where does this benefit your life we've started to do that in our newsletter and you can go to massmouth.org to sign up for that um you can also go to suitcasestories.org to explore that program and um and it's been exciting cuz they're both feeding each other um uh, i was really grateful to world channel they featured two episodes of suitcase stories but they've also put other suitcase tellers in multiple episodes and um we just um the ICA, the Institute for Contemporary Art, is doing a four-month exhibit on immigration starting in October, and they're featuring suitcase stories in their exhibit. Oh, wonderful. So, yeah, to your point, how do we be catalysts yeah. and producers for making sure all voices are heard? Yeah, and some of the stuff that we've seen here in Malden has definitely been through art. Mm-hmm. It's been through sharing of... Um, when we had the temporary pop-up, there was a ton of mm. activity around inviting different voices in yeah. and having co- different cultural music um, playing and people sharing mm. stories and poetry and, um, you know, celebrating the the um, different businesses that are starting to get built up in Malden that are owned by immigrants. Yeah, exactly. So we actually... Um, one of our, we just went through a strategic planning process with Bassmouth because of our rapid growth, and uh, one of our obligations to ourselves is to make sure we have a footprint in multiple neighborhoods, including low-income communities, including immigrant-dominated mm-hmm. communities. Mm-hmm. Because as we, when we got really small, because all of us were doing this besides our full-time jobs, we just maintained our two closest partners, which is Trident Booksellers and Club Passim, that we are incredibly grateful for. Mm-hmm. But you have to live downtown Boston, um, and we want to make sure that people in Dorchester and yep. Roxbury, and yep. eventually, you know, we're expanding across the state. We're taking a traveling all-star show. So... Yeah. Come to Malden. We would love to come to Malden. Yeah, we, we um, we're, MATV is doing um, satellite programming at the Senior Center, and oh. they actually have this, like, lovely lobby area that has a fireplace that is perfect for storytelling. Yeah, let's so. talk <laughs> more. And, and especially the diversity of the community here, which yeah. is, like, amazing. Downtown especially is hugely diverse. Right. Um, huge, um, I believe it's Muslim community, but multi-ethnic uh, Muslim community. Um, and then there's also the highest Asian population is in Malden outside of Quincy. Yeah. So, uh, and Lowell, I believe. Yeah, so. I lived in Lowell for a couple of years, and I, I love Lowell. I have a deep appreciation, again, for the same reasons you like Malden. Yeah. It's I like, worked in Lowell for a while. Oh, as well. great. See, more connections. I worked at the <laughs> American Textile History Museum. Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. So that had a really high um, visitor population that was um, uh, multi ethnic because mm-hmm. people appreciate 
textiles and the history of textiles. Totally. And again, it's like through art, whether that's storytelling or Craft. some other. Yeah. People always have that connection. So. For sure. Thank you so much. Was oh there anything God. else you'd like to share? Uh, I think I shared a lot. Plus, okay. I shared it fast, so it's twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on today. Oh, and, thanks. Um, I was... hope to hear you on stage more. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm definitely wanting to do more storytelling, and I have. Um, I have a parent now who has dementia, so I have lots of stories related <laughs> to that. I'm sure. My brother and I talk frequently about you know mom's latest thing and like trying to actually think about where her mind is at, even though she's sort of losing losing her mind, losing did, her threads. Did you listen to Riddell, um, uh, Rilda Cassell's story? No. Oh, my God. Um, so she was someone who came to a class, got up and told a story, and I immediately said to her, you, you Is need- it stories from the stage? So she also made it to the Big Mouth Off, our finale, okay. and then she also was on um, Stories from the Stage, and it's a story about her mother with Alzheimer's. It, Tell, say her name again. Um, Rilda Cassell. Because maybe what we could do is play her clip. Oh, definitely. It's one. It's just unbelievable yeah. story. And to your point, like it can be both a story, but also education. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all. And 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 caregivers, especially regardless of who you're caring for, they need that outlet, and we need to see the humor mm-hmm. in it, and we need to see. We need to be seen, mm-hmm. and we also need to find connection and find understanding and uh, have have ability to frustrate, <laughs> to air our frustrations as well as know and be accepting of the process because it's a lot of it's out of your control yeah. and out of the person's control that you're caring yeah. for. So We're actually working with two national agencies that are in healthcare right now and um, helping physicians and healthcare providers share stories of burnout, stories yeah, of vulnerability. Absolutely. And it's a big change, right, for some of these physicians who are supposed to be seen as perfect all the yeah. time, confident, never doubting their decisions. And it's been such an inspiration to work with them and have them be able to say, yeah, to your point, like sometimes you feel like yeah. an imposter. They're like, sometimes I look at a case and I don't know what to do, yeah. but I don't know if I should ask a colleague for help because I don't want to look vulnerable. Yeah. It's, they're going to be amazing stories too. That sounds great. Thanks, Thank Felicia. So that was fun. <laughs> this was High Felicia Podcast. I'm your host, Felicia Ryan, and my guest today was Cheryl Hamilton. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you.